0: morning starting up a new series called the extraordinary ordinary christian life our text this morning is in john chapter 4 Uh, we're going to have that up on the screen if you're using the pew bibles provided it's page 912 page 912 in the pew bibles or john chapter 4 if you're used to looking at a bible Um, i want to start out by telling you a story there's a man named william borden he was born in 1887 as the heir to a massive fortune you are familiar with that massive fortune. If you have ever spent a massive fortune on Borden milk, um, when Colleen was uh, pregnant still, that was all that she would drink, and she drank a lot of it. We went through about two or three gallons of Borden milk a week. Uh, that was her pregnancy craving. And uh, so, you know, we didn't have electricity, but we had Borden and milk. And <laughs> she, she drank it before it got warm, so that turned out to be fine. Um, the fantastic thing about William Borden is that despite being the heir to that massive fortune, he turned it all down. He became a Christian in the late 1890s and at age 16 went on a whirlwind tour of Europe. And when he was on this tour of Europe, he decided that God was calling him to be a missionary. So William Borden wrote back home and said that he was going to go and he was going to be a missionary to the Muslims in northern China. Uh, His friends who knew him said, I can't believe he's throwing his life away like that. William Borden uh, came back to prepare. He went to Yale University, where he was very successful. To give you some kind of an indication of it, uh, Yale was originally, of course, a seminary, a theological seminary, but by the late 1890s, it was a very secular institution. Uh, So he was upset by this and decided to start doing a Bible study. It started out with him and one other person. By the end of his freshman year, there were 150 students that were meeting for this Bible study. By the time he graduated from Yale University, 1,300 students were meeting for his weekly Bible studies. He was charismatic. He was smart. He was the president of his class. You would think that might make a guy reconsider going to the Muslims of northern China, being the president of Yale. But it didn't. He said that the thing that made a difference in his life, the thing that made other people take notice of him, was he had a practice they did not have. He wrote in his journal, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. He, at this point, gave away a million dollars. He gave away the bulk of the fortune he had inherited. And in his Bible, he wrote a date, so we know this was when it was. And next to it wrote, no reserves. We would say no reservations, no holding back. After he graduated Yale, of course, he had high job offers coming in from all over the country. He turned them all down. His father, who was not a Christian, his mother was the Christian in the family, his father, who was not a Christian, said, if you keep acting like this, I will never hire you into our family business. He made a date in his Bible, and he wrote, no retreats. A little further, and he decided he was ready to go to China. He studied at Princeton Divinity School for a little bit, you know, Yale, Princeton. He could have done whatever he wanted. He studied there for a little bit. And he wanted to go reach the Muslims in northern China. So on his way in the 1890s, he stopped in Egypt to study Arabic. In Egypt, he caught spinal meningitis and died. But before he died, he made one more entry in his Bible no regrets, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. William Borden gave up his fortune, gave up everything he had in what was truly an extraordinary life. Here's the epitaph on his headstone. It says, a man in Christ, he arose and forsook all and followed him, kindly affectioned with brotherly love, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, instant in prayer, communicating to the necessity of saints in honor, preferring others. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Imagine somebody that would give up everything that could be dying of meningitis in Egypt instead of enjoying the boredom fortune. And he says, no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. That's an extraordinary life. You say, well, that was a long time ago, you know, 1890s. People were just different then. Um, I know somebody who's in a very similar situation. Uh, Brother Glenn Knight there on the right side has visited our church. He is a missionary to the Philippines. He has a group called Remote Island Ministries. That means he goes on a sailboat from island to island in the Philippines, reaching people that no one else has ever met. See, he goes in this massive sailboat. And he goes and he meets people who have never met an outsider. He takes them equipment to dig wells. He takes them all kinds of things. And you say, well, what about Doctors Without Borders? We asked him that question when he was here. And he said, the places I go, Doctors Without Borders can't go because there's no airports. There's no helicopter pads. We just go on our sailboat from place to place. He said once he was meeting with somebody who was in their 80s, this old Filipino woman. And he said to her, He was giving her the gospel, and he said, She said, when I was a little girl, somebody came and told me about Jesus. Where have you been? That's Glenn Knight. Next to him was his first wife died in 2014. Do you know why? She caught an infection, and on a boat in the middle of the Philippines, it developed into a blood infection, and there was no cure. If she had been in the United States, might she have survived? Very likely, healthy, good shape. But she gave her life to reach those people that nobody else could reach. I don't know about you, that is an extraordinary life. You. So we look at William Borden, we look at Paula Knight, and we say, you know, I could never have a life like that. You. You look at your life and you say, you know, it just doesn't compare. You see, I don't feel called to go around the world and die. Yeah, you know, I don't feel called to do this or that or the other. The burden that God has on my life is to work at my job, uh, raise my family, be here. You know, what can I do in Brazoria County that has half the meaning of what they did around the world? And so maybe those stories excite you and encourage you, and maybe they just discourage you. But the title of our series, as I mentioned, is the extraordinary ordinary Christian life. See, every Christian has the opportunity to have an extraordinary life. God has extraordinary things that are within your power, that are within your grasp for you to do. And over the coming weeks, we've got eight of these that I've uh, looked through and studied and identified. And we're going to do four, and then we'll take a break for Christmas, and then we'll do four at the first of the year. Here they are. Worshiping, serving, learning, stewarding, Studying, witnessing, praying, and fasting. The extraordinary, ordinary Christian life. As we're going to see, each one of those things is something that is earth-shattering. It's something that is just, it's just incredible. You know, The ordinary Christian life is, I've made a list of adjectives here. The ordinary Christian life is extraordinary, peacemaking, hell-shattering, world-changing, life-bringing, death-killing, heaven-soaked event. <laughs> The significance that you can have if you will follow God is just as important as William Borden or Paula Knight or any of these other people. You have the opportunity to change your world. Jesus said, it best, of course, in John 10, 10, "The thief the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come, I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Jesus did not come for you to have a halfway life, a meaningless life. Jesus came for you to have an abundant, world-changing life. And that's what our new series is going to be about. We are going to start with worship. It may be to you, worship is not the most extraordinary thing that you could do. You know, what does that even mean, worship? I'm going to give you a very simple definition. Worship is intimate communication with God. Now, again, maybe at first to you, if different people are wired differently, if you grew up in the church and you're just really familiar with Christianity and the things that we say, that probably seems really tame. But I want you to just contemplate for a second. God made the universe. The Bible says that heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain God, God's bigger than everything. The observable universe has two trillion galaxies. That's a lot of galaxies. Each one of those 2 trillion galaxies has approximately 200 billion stars. That means that in the known universe, there are 400 sextillion stars. 400 sextillion. You're like, I don't even know what that means. How about 400,000 billion billion stars? That's a lot of stars. If the Earth, to compare the Earth to the... um, The stars, if you had a basketball, the dot, the hole that you use to refill the basketball would be the size of the earth if the basketball was the size of the sun. You are just a speck on the earth, right? I mean, (laughs) you're inconsequential. Compared to the earth, you are smaller than a ribosome and a bacteria growing on your skin compared to you, that relationship. You're so small. So you are a speck on a speck, on a speck, on a speck, on a speck of something that cannot even begin to contain God. And so then the question becomes, why is God concerned with you? It's a very good question. The psalmist writes, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? Darren, can you move the mount? Could you operate the computer, please? So it'll come back to life. Thank you. As we look at this then, we, we do have to ask that question. You know, if God cares about you, if you can actually have intimacy with God, there is something extraordinary about that. I could fly to Washington, D.C. today and say, I'd like to speak to the president. And do you know how far I'm going to make it? I want mean, you to imagine me going up to Washington, D.C., going to the gate of the White House and shaking the gate. They're not, they're not going to come out and I say, I'm here to see Mr. Obama, please. They say, oh, come right in, sir. It's not going to happen. You say, well, who do you think you are? It's going to be a very good question. If I decide, well, you know what? It's the the people's house. I've got a right, and I hop the fence. That will be the last thing I ever hop, right? I don't have any. I cannot approach the president of the United States. You know, let's say I get in an airplane, then. I fly to New York instead, and I go to Trump Tower. And I say, I'd like to see the president-elect. Surely, I can't see the actual president, but maybe before he is president, I don't think that I'm going to make it to the elevator. (laughs) It would be extraordinary if I was the kind of person that could call up the White House and say, okay, I'm coming up for a visit. That would be extraordinary. But as a Christian, you can call up the king of the universe and have intimacy. Be known by the king of the universe and know the king of the universe. That means that worship is extraordinary. It's ordinary because you don't have to be special. You know, it's not you have to be gifted enough or whatever. You don't have to be able to be the, prince, uh, the president of your class at Yale. But just by being a child of God, you have the ability to have intimate communion with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's incredible. That's extraordinary. That is the extraordinary, ordinary Christian life. So if you look now, of course, in John chapter 4, verse 16, we're going to pick up kind of in the middle of this account, John chapter 4, verse 16. We're we're looking into a conversation Jesus has been having. We're eavesdropping on this conversation. Jesus has gone into Samaria, and in Samaria, he has stopped uh, to visit with a woman at a well. Now, Samaria was not the kind of neighborhood that a self-respecting Jewish person went into. To give you just a little bit of historical context, when the other Israelites were carried away into slavery in Babylon, the Samaritans were the people who were left behind and intermarried with the pagans of the land. So they were kind of hated, one, for escaping slavery when everybody else was enslaved. Two, they were hated for being racially half-breeds. Three, they were hated for corrupting the religion. So I want you to imagine, just to give you a sense of the level of prejudice. I want you to imagine if in 1950s America, you walked into a neighborhood that was predominantly half white, half black Muslims. And I told you that George Cleaver walked in there. The level of prejudice, the hatred, and the hatred back that would have existed at that point there pales in comparison to how much Jews and Samaritans hated each other. If a, uh, Jew, if a Samaritan drank from a wooden cup, the Jew would burn it sooner than drink from it again. In fact, uh, this is true of Gentiles and also uh, Samaritans, but if a Jewish woman saw a Samaritan woman giving birth, she would walk past because she did not want to soil her hands bringing another dog into the world. They hated each other. In fact, uh, when you were traveling from one part of Israel to the other part, and Samaria's in the middle, they would walk around so that they would not have to get the dust of their feet. When they, if they did, for some reason, have to walk through Samaria, when they walked into Samaria, they would shake the dust off their feet because they said the, Samaria did not deserve the dust of Israel. And when they walked out, they would shake out their feet again. So when Jesus says, if a town won't accept the gospel, shake the dust off your feet uh, when you leave, he's making a very powerful point to their prejudice. Uh, but that's, that's a second matter. But in any case... They hated these people. But Jesus says, I must needs go through Samaria. Now you say, that's not the kind of person that could have intimacy with God. That's not the kind of person who could worship God, somebody that lives there. He goes a little farther, he settles at this well, he sits at this well, and this woman comes out in the middle of the day. Now, I don't know a whole lot about fetching water. But I know that if you live in that time period, you know you're going to need to do it. And you know that it gets hot. I don't know if any of you have ever been to Israel, but it is hot. It's hot all the time, except at night. In the middle of the day, it is scorching hot. So why would this woman come out in the middle of the day? Why would this woman come alone? Women don't even go to the bathroom alone. Why is this woman going to the well in the middle of the day by herself? Well... Apparently, nobody else wanted to go with her, and she had to go when all of the other women were not there. So, would God really want anything to do with this social outcast? You know, if people don't even want you, why would this God who made the stars want you? In fact, people don't like you because of what they know about you. I uh, read that it, uh, I want to say it was Chuck Swindoll, uh, whenever someone criticized him, his response when someone said, Oh, did you hear what they said about you? He would say, or he says, um, Well, I'm glad they don't know more about me, or they would say a lot worse. <laughs> See, you, you, the people, people don't like you because the outside, but you know, God knows every thought that you've ever had, God knows every temptation you've ever faced, God knows every moment of weakness that nobody else knows about. So this woman was bad enough for some reason that we'll figure out. She was bad enough that she was an outcast from people. How could you possibly expect God to have anything to do with her? She was the wrong kind of person with the wrong kind of background. How could she worship? How could she have intimacy with God? So look here, John 4, verse 16. (laughs) Jesus said unto her, Go, call thy husband and come hither. In the middle of this conversation, Jesus says, Hey, go get your husband and let's talk all together. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, and that thou hast said truly. (laughs) To give you a little bit of context, if you made it out of childhood in the first century, your lifespan was about 50 years, and this woman is apparently not at the end of her lifespan. She's going and gathering water, but she's already been married five times. Jesus says, you're right to say you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the one that you're living with now is not your husband. You know, so much for common law marriage. Jesus looks at her and knows everything about her like that. And now you know the reason that the other women didn't come out to draw water with her. She's had five husbands. They don't want their husband to be the sixth. They don't want to have anything to do with her. She's an outcast. You say, what would God want to do with somebody like that? I think it's a good question. And if Jesus knows who this woman is, why on earth is he being seen in public with that woman? I know Christians who say, well, I wouldn't want to spend much time with them. I'd hate to give the wrong impression. You know the kind of person that is. Maybe you've heard somebody talk like that. But Jesus comes and sits and carries on a conversation with just the two of them. That's different. So we have this. He said, You've had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. In that, you've said truly. So I just want to mention to you, we've already seen, she's in the wrong, she's the wrong kind of person to have a relationship with God. She's got the wrong background to have a relationship with God. You would think that if worship was anything like we would make it, that she wouldn't stand a chance. She, realizing that Jesus has just, you know, known the deepest secrets of her heart, says, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. You must be some kind of prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. <laughs> I want you to imagine this. She says, you know, you Jews say that people should worship at Jerusalem, but we worship at Mount Gerizim here. <laughs> just to give you just a, I don't know how to explain this except to back up and modernize it. She says, speaking of my sin, where do you think the right temple is? you ever had a conversation with somebody like that? You say, you know, um, I really don't like what you said the other day to me or whatever. And suddenly the topic changes. Suddenly some minutia becomes (laughs) very important. If you're telling somebody about Jesus, you know, you're explaining to them. You say, look, you know, Jesus died for you. He loves you. And although you've sinned against him, although you've done things that are wrong, although you don't deserve to worship him, he wants to have a relationship with you. And if God starts to work on their hearts, sometimes what people will do is say, yeah, but what about Noah's Ark? Where did that come from? Your fathers worship over there, and our fathers worship over here. And it starts to be about everything except what they're talking about. So she tries to pick a fight a little bit. Not only does she have the wrong background, she's got the wrong attitude. And I don't know about you, but when somebody's got a bad attitude with me, goodness gracious. The other day, um, I was checking out at Kroger, and I thought, this man has got the worst attitude of anybody that I have ever seen. And I said, I should get his name and call. I didn't. I was, I, then I got in the car, and I was thinking about this. I was like, all right, Lord, I understand. But <laughs> I said he just got a bad attitude. I was buying um, turkeys for the Thanksgiving food drive the Lions Club was doing. And I had the two turkeys there on the belt, and he scanned them, and I paid, and then he just looked at me, and he was like, "Well, got your turkeys here." I was like, "All right, you're not my favorite cashier, and so well, when somebody's got a bad attitude, suddenly we just shut them down. No way. But she here is trying to pick a fight with Jesus, you know he brings up He reveals he's a prophet. He shows that he knows things he could not possibly know, and she wants to pick a theological debate about where the proper location of the temple is. See, no one has ever been argued into being a Christian. Isn't that right? You can't do it. Dave Ramsey says, he convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. You don't argue somebody. In fact, I don't know, um, Colleen and I, uh, started dating eight years ago. You know, we're married, have a baby. I don't know that I've actually won an argument. I think I've been right sometimes, but I have never actually won an argument. <laughs> you know, it's just, you say, well, that's not fair. It's not fair. But you, when you're having a fight with somebody, you do not talk them into thinking the way that you think. Because how many of you are just like me? When somebody starts to argue with you, you double down. And the harder they argue with you, the harder you argue back until eventually you forget what you're arguing about. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't matter anymore. I'm just winning. You know the, uh, It's like when you argue about what restaurant to go to. I know none of you would ever do this, but I've heard about people who do this. You argue about what restaurant to go to, but it always is almost a non-argument, right? Uh, well, where do you want to go? Well, I don't care. Okay, well, how about Carino's? No, not Carino's. <laughs> you do this back and forth, and now both of you are hungry. And you just, everybody loses in an argument. So she, she tries to pick a fight with Jesus. He's got this bad attitude. You've got the wrong kind of person with the wrong kind of personal history with the wrong kind of attitude. A speck on a speck on a speck on a speck on a speck. What could God want to do with her? What is this extraordinary thing we call worship? It doesn't make any sense. So she says this. She says, our fathers worshiped here in Mount Gerizim. You worshiped at Jerusalem. Verse 21, Jesus said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. He says, look, there's a time coming where this temple is going to stand in rubbles. The temple at Jerusalem is going to be destroyed too. Nobody's going to worship God either one of those places. He says, you worship what you know, not what. (laughs) We we know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. He says, look, uh, it's true that the temple is where God's chosen place is. He says, you don't understand what's happening. So look at that. There's another strike against her. But he says, but the hour cometh and now is. The hour is coming when nobody will worship at these two temples, but the hour is come, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. This is so important. Said your fa- she said, your fathers worship at Jerusalem, my fathers worship here. Jesus says, the Father wants you to worship in spirit and in truth. Now, in spirit and in truth, what does that mean? We're going to talk about that. But I just to give you a very quick point here, Jesus goes around saying things like, I am the temple. He says, destroy this, bo- destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. Jesus says that the place that people come to worship God is no longer a place, but is a person. Jesus is the glory of God come down. You don't go to Jerusalem to experience the presence of God. You can. God's there. But God's in Richwood too. And God's in Angleton. God's even in Clute. God's all over. You don't have to run to chase God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. To worship God in spirit and in truth is to worship him through the person of Jesus. And without giving the whole thing away, the only reason this woman, who's got the wrong background, the wrong race, the wrong attitude, the wrong everything, can come to worship God, the only way they can, she can have intimacy with God is through the person of Jesus. To watch. This is so important. Um, we are going to, bounce, well, verse 24 first, and then we're going to move. He says, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God's a spirit. You see, God does not care about the things you do for him on the outside. To her, the question was, what mountain do we go to to offer the right kind of animals to do the right kind of things to make God love us? That's how they operated. A lot of you, I say that, I hope not, but maybe, a lot of you have got a religion where you say, look, if I come to church, I sit in the right building, and I do the right things, then eventually I can tilt the scales and will cause God to love me. But that's not the Bible. You will never do anything to cause God to love you because your actions are not what sway God. You could never earn the love of God. He is so big and you are so small. He is so holy And we are so helpless. But God already loves you. That's the difference in Christianity and every other faith, isn't it? Everybody else says, do good, do the right things, and God will love you. Christianity says, God already loves you. And he wants to help you do the right things. That difference is so important. I want you to imagine, if you were... if you were a sailor and your boat sank, another boat comes by, they throw out a rope and they pull you in. And they say, you know, uh, can you help us with some different things? You say, you saved my life. I'll help you with whatever you need. That's Christianity. It's not, oh, I'm going to do this work and then you'll rescue me. It's I'm drowning. You are the only one who can save me. But now in gratitude for what you've done, what can I do to help? That's the difference. This woman here, she is not going to impress God by making the right sacrifices in the right place or even being the right person because the flesh does not impress God. God's a spirit. You know, God doesn't, God's, God's not a, a person in that physical sense except when he became flesh in the person of Jesus. But he says God's nature is spirit. And because his nature is spirit, your worship must be in spirit. And in truth. God is not impressed by the things you do on the outside. God wants your heart. That's the most important thing. Now watch. So let me give you some context. What does in spirit mean? Uh, Psalm 51, verse 16. I'm going to point this out to you. David praying. He says, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. David says, look, Lord, if I believed that what you wanted was a sacrifice, then I would go and I would get the biggest cow around. But sacrifices do not move you. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. What is the sacrifice that God wants? What is the worship that God wants? He wants it in your spirit. He says, I want want from the inside out. I want you to recognize who I am and from the inside out, bend who you are there. So when you sin, God says, I want you to come to me with a broken heart. He says, rend your heart and not your garments. And the prophet Amos. He says, I'm I'm sick and tired of you wearing black and being the same on the inside. I'm sick and tired of you crying and moaning and not having any change. He says, I want you to tear your heart, not your garments. A broken heart. God says, I will never reject a broken heart. But oftentimes, that is the last thing we want to give God. We want to give God a lot of things that he doesn't need and he doesn't want that don't help us. But what he's looking for is your heart. He's desiring people. He's looking for people to worship him in spirit and in truth. He says, thou desirest not sacrifice or I'd give it. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, he says, the, Lord look, the man looketh on outward appearance, but the Lord looketh at the heart. So the first thing, spirit. That's in your spirit through the Holy Spirit. See, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have any access to God. But when you become a Christian, he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? So you worship God in your spirit through the spirit, not on the outside essential to understand that. It's not about the kind of person you are. It's not about what you've done. It's not about what you do. The extraordinary thing is that God wants to experience intimacy with you, not through your body, but directly to your spirit, directly on the inside. Can you imagine that? God says, you know, in, in the world, there's, there's people And uh, what passes, what we use the word intimacy is a euphemism for. People say, I want to touch your body, right? But God says, I am not satisfied with anything less, but your soul pressed up against mine. The intimacy, I want to know you and be known by you. Jesus knew this woman, right? He says, you've been married five times. The man you have now is not your husband. He knew where her heart was. He knew where she was going to be when she was going to be there. He waited for her. He sought her out. He knew her. She did not yet know him. It's going to keep them from having that worship, that intimacy of worship. What is worship? You know, we we talk about different things. We sing. When we sing, what do we do? We sing about God to God, or we sing about ourselves to God. Say, God, I expose myself to you, and I recognize who you are. When you uh, listen to the word of God and you allow God to apply it to the dark nooks and crannies of your heart, you are making yourself vulnerable in intimacy to God. When you know more about God and you expose more of yourself to God, that's worship. When you give financially, you you, you give to make yourself vulnerable before God. When we sing corporately, you say, well, I don't really like to sing. I don't want anybody to hear me. Well, that's part of it. I'm sorry. That's the kind of thing that you always say once people are already here. The discomfort you feel coming into a group of people and exposing yourself like this is part of your worship. You offer that vulnerability to each other and to to God. If you don't have vulnerability, there's no love without vulnerability. There's no love without risk. If you love God, there is risk, there is intimacy, there is vulnerability there. And in some ways, I think that risk and that vulnerability is scarier than dying of meningitis in Egypt because we guard our hearts so closely. But God says, I want to know you on the deepest level. I don't want there to be anything hidden. That's my question for you immediately is, in your spirit, do you open yourself up to God that way? In truth, a little earlier in Psalm 51, verse 6, he says, Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. If you're going to worship God in truth, you have to worship the true God. You have to learn about God, and you have to be honest about yourself. So first, it's in spirit. It's not an external thing. Jesus said, you Pharisees, wash the outside of the cup, leave the inside dirty, and drink out of a dirty cup. God will not do that. God's not impressed with what you do on the outside. Jesus says, uh, you're like white and sepulchers. What's a what's a white and sepulchre? You go to the cemetery. You see it. Uh, maybe not so much here. You go to Galveston. Galveston's full of sepulchers. The cemetery there. These beautiful white stones. They whitewash them. They keep them beautiful. But what's on the inside? Dead man's bones. You can't do much to impress God. You know, you clean up the outside. God knows if you're still dead on the inside. He says, I want you in the spirit. He says, I also want you in truth. If you're going to have a love relationship with somebody, if you're going to have intimacy with somebody, it has to be who you really are with who they really are. You can't worship God and say, but I don't really believe in Jesus because that's who he really is. You can't worship God and say, you know, but I'm going to hold these things back because that's not who you really are. (laughs) To worship God, it must be in spirit and in truth. That's one of the reasons that we come together to study the Bible it, You know, is to come and know him deeply and truly. So some people say, you know, I'm going to worship God in spirit and forget about all your doctrine stuff, right? Forget about all your teachings. You know, we're just going to, I'm just going to get emotional. Well, that's, that's not worshiping in truth. Some people just worship in truth. You know, they do the right things. They say the right things, but their heart's not in it. The frozen chosen, right? God's not impressed with that either. You can know all the right things. You know, the devil knows more about theology than you do. (laughs) But you must worship both in spirit and in truth. And to know that you could truly be with God in that most intimate, sincere level, to have communion with God like that, that worship, where you sing to him, you pray to him, you meditate on his word, you you serve him, you offer yourself to him in that kind of intimacy, that's extraordinary, But it's also very ordinary because you can do it every single day. That's incredible. And if you do it, I guarantee you cannot do it and leave unchanged. The Bible says, if anyone knows God, he loves his brother because God is love. Now, you say, what does that mean? Let me give it to you a little differently. If anybody is in in water, he is wet because water is wet. I cannot have water all around me and not be wet. I cannot be in God. I cannot have love all around me and not love. You can't help it. So if your heart is cold, my question is, how much time have you spent in intimacy with God? You can do it in here in a crowded room. You can do it alone. You have intimacy with God, though. You reflect on him. You reveal yourself to him. You offer yourself to him. And you say, okay, well, then why should I have to come to church at all? It's a good question, right? Right? I mean, why do we have verses like Hebrews ten twenty five, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together? Why do we have verses that tell us not, if we can worship anywhere, it's not about going to the right place. Why does the Bible tell us to assemble weekly? What's the purpose of that? Well, first off, I want to make clear, it's not a place. If this building burned to the ground, we could meet in the ashes and God would be just as much here as he would be anywhere else. You know, sometimes we don't think like that. I have a friend who is a, a church planner in Austin, and, you know, they have to go baptize at the pool, the city pool. They don't have a baptistry. They meet in a Boy Scout building, or they did. And some of my other pastor friends say, you know, I just don't know how you could worship God there. Well, that's some extraordinarily poor theology, isn't it? <laughs> but sometimes we feel like that, don't we? But it's not about the place. It's about the people. The Bible says in 1 Timothy, the church is the house of God. This building is not God's house. We say that, right? We say, oh, don't run in here. This is God's house. This is not God's house. This is a building. This is God's house's house. You, if you are Christians gathered together in his name, are God's house. And this is just a building so God's house doesn't get rained on because God's house gets grumpy when it's wet. This is just a, a shell, but the spirit comes and lives in your heart and in your midst. Look, um, Matthew eighteen twenty. Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. This morning, Jesus is here. You brought him here in your heart, but when we came together here for the purpose of worshiping him and his authority, he's here in our midst too. He's here in a special way. So when you come to church, you say, oh, you know, I just felt God. Sometimes you don't. Your emotions are not the strongest indicator of truth, believe it or not. I don't care what you saw on Oprah, right? Your emotions are not the fundamental determiner of truth. God is here. And if God is inside of you and around you, can you imagine the intimacy and the communion you can have with God? And Jesus says, uh, I'm sorry, John says, you can't love your brother. You can't love God whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen. So when we come here and we confess our sins to each other, sing together, pray together, open up together, being intimate with each other trains us to be intimate with God. So when you worship here, it's like the furnace that heats you up so you can radiate that heat of worship all week. That's powerful. This is extraordinary. But we get to do it every week. Some of you do it more than once a week, wonder of wonders. It's extraordinary. But it's ordinary. It's all the time. You don't have to be special in the world standard. I I say that. I have to be careful. You are special, right? But you don't have to be the president of your class at Yale. So the last thing, uh, know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you. We can have intimacy in a crowd, our fellowship together. Vulnerability brings us together. Soren Kierkegaard said, People have the idea that their preacher is an actor on a stage and they are the critics, blaming or praising him. What they don't know is that they are the actors on the stage. He is merely the prompter standing in the wings, reminding them of lost lines. That's why you come to church. You come to church because when you're out there worshiping, being the church, being God's representatives in the world, I don't know about you, but I forget my lines. And we need to come together to be encouraged, to worship together, and also offer that up. Back in John 4, just two more verses, and we'll be done. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. She says, I, you know, I don't know about all this worshiping and spirit and in truth stuff, but I know the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, we'll understand it all. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. Jesus says... The one that you're looking for is already here. I've already shown you that you are known of me. And I want you to know me. The reason that you can come and you can offer yourself to God is because God has already reached down to you. How can God accept our worship? Maybe that tension still in your mind from the beginning. How could he offer it? How could we offer it in a way that would be meaningful to him? That's because God came down and became flesh. And died to take away all the barriers of self and sin and attitude and everything else. And he says, "If you'll give me a broken heart, I'll forget about all those other sacrifices. Jesus was the sacrifice that covers your sins. If you'll give me your broken heart, we can have a relationship right now. We can worship right now. Maybe you've never experienced that. You know You say, "Well, I repeated a prayer when I was five. Okay, that's wonderful. If that was real, that's more than wonderful. But it's not about repeating words you know, to be saved. You don't become a Christian by signing a card. You become a Christian by coming to Jesus in spirit and in truth. And if you've never really been changed, then I think you ought to check for yourself if you are really a Christian. The Bible says, examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. Look at your heart. If any man hath not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. My question then this morning, is does his spirit spirit bear witness with your spirit that you are the child of God? Can you worship him? Or is there a barrier between you? If you're willing this morning to know that Jesus came, that he died in your place, and that he gives you life, then he is ready. Our worship is not waking ourselves up, stirring your own emotions up. It is, like if I had two pianos in here and I struck a loud C on one and then stopped it, It would still resonate a C on this one, wouldn't it? It's the note of God's love struck reverberating in your heart. That's worship. It's like, God, you love me, and now I shake to love you back. So when we sing, we just echo that. We pray and tell him our weakness and trust in our troubles. We open up all of ourself to all that he is. We expose everything that we are to him. It's vulnerability to someone that we've never seen. But it's vulnerability to someone who made himself completely vulnerable, stripped and helpless on a cross. So the offer to you this morning is that if this extraordinary thing seems to be out of reach for you, Jesus is ready for your worship. Is he worthy of your worship? Well, is he worthy of you to nod your head? I mean, is he worthy of what? He's worthy of all that you are, to open yourself up in intimacy to him. And you say, I just don't know how I could do that. I just don't know how I could be vulnerable. You say, I've been hurt so many times. I was hurt by my parents or hurt by my spouse or hurt by my friend or whatever. I say, the last time that I was vulnerable, it backfired. I think that's most people's story. How could I do it? One recognizing that Jesus took the first step. And right now he reaches out to your heart and he says, I love you, I died for you. If you'll turn from your sin and trust in me, I'll change you and we can have an intimate relationship forever. Two, I remind you of the last line of Billy Borden's epitaph. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. You have the opportunity to have a life that's ordinary. I'm not sending you to China. But a life that's truly extraordinary, because starting this morning, you can enter into a love relationship of worshiping God. We're going to stand and have a hymn of invitation, and if you've never trusted Christ, I want you to do that now. As we sing this song, we're going to sing a couple verses of this song, and as we sing, I want you to step out and say, you know, I'm not really saved. I need forgiveness of my sins. There's something between me and you.